Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Hi. Uh, I thought really hard on how to do an opening for this, and I couldn't find a good one. So that's fine. Um, basically, when Nikayla and I first started thinking about the idea of a Roman series, I went and read through the Book of Romans a number of times, and... As a kid, I was always really attached to Romans. I was like the super, super nerdy Bible kid. And I read through it multiple times and all these different things uh, to the point where like, and and don't do this, but like when I was, I, I would like be a cabin leader at Bible camps and I would get to a point where I'd be like, you have all these questions. I'm just going to sit down and read like five chapters of Romans in a row to you because Paul just explains it all. So why would I like translate this for you when I can just sit down and read like this super, super dense piece of literature? Um, and so, yeah, coming back to it after, you know, a, a couple of years of like not being super into Romans, I mean, like this is so confusing. The language here is very dense. Um, and especially these two chapters, Romans 7 and 8, um, there's so, so much. I'm going to talk about them in like fairly like broad elemental terms. I'm not going to like dig into the Greek or all these different things, which is always like, I'm not, I think that's super fun. I genuinely think that's very fun. Um, but I'm not going to be doing that today. The linguistics is so much fun. I'm an English student, so, you know. Um, but yeah, Romans, Romans 7 and 8 are extremely dense. There are a lot of moving parts, a lot of different mechanics going on. Um, and so let's, where, where have we been? We've been doing this whole series on Romans and Empire and the idea that like Paul is writing to a people under the the rule of empire. He's, he's been writing to these people. They're largely poor. They're subjugated. Um, a lot of them are Jewish, which would have been like a, a minority ethnic group. And there are all these different mechanics going on. And so Paul is talking to them about the need to come together um, in this church, in this community of total openness. And this is sort of like the movement we've been going through in Romans. And in the previous chapter, um, we, we, we kind of mentioned Paul is doing this whole thing with like the law and, and freedom. And so with Romans 7, he really unpacks that. He's been talking about dying um, to the allegiance to the empire, um, both Rome literally, but also the empire as, as this force of subjugation um, and committing ourselves to a new imagination, um, something that's more open, more united, etc. And so in Romans 7, he starts to unpack this movement in greater detail. Now, Romans is really, really dense. Romans 7 especially is really dense. I don't, I think there's a slide of it. Oh, is that? Yeah. So yeah. So here's, here's just a snippet of, of Romans 7. Um, it's all like this. It's all like, 
law and flesh and life and spirit. And then he gets into this, this, this chunk um, towards the end where he's like, I don't understand what I'm doing. Um, I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I do want to do. And, and he's going back and forth. And it's so, so tense. There's just this, this tension between um, the dynamics that he's referring to as like the law and sin, which we'll kind of touch on a little bit. Um, but it, it's this tension. It's this struggle between, well, I want to be doing all of these things. I want to be like living a good life, but I can't. I find myself held back and I'm suffering and I'm fighting against myself all the time. And there are a lot of different interpretations of what the heck he's talking about with this. Um, some are like, well, is Paul talking about his life before he became a Christian, um, wrestling with the Jewish law? And some people are like, well, is Paul actually talking about um, kind of the Jewish people as a whole? Or is he talking about his experience right now in sort of this new faith? And he's like reworking his entire imagination. I don't really care about those divisions. Um, mostly I'm focused on this idea of like, Paul fighting against himself. And also the ideas that I kind of grew up with about this passage, because I think, and I hope I'm speaking for a majority of people, but maybe it's just myself. Like growing up, this always felt like the passage that people pointed to and were like, look, life sucks. And life as a Christian sucks because Paul hated it and you get to hate it too. Enjoy suffering like all of life is this idea of you're trying your best to do your best but you're fighting sin and sin is everywhere and it's got its claws on you it's the sickness always on you and there's nothing you can do about it and it's this passage this passage of Romans 7 always came with like a great deal of shame and guilt like I don't do the things I want to do and I feel bad about that because I'm being told to live to like this better higher calling but as this passage points out, I physically can't do it. It sucks. Um, it's it's shame and it's guilt. I talked to a couple of people um, kind of in the week leading up to this and, and these different ideas of like going to like youth conferences and going to every single altar call. Cause like maybe this will be the one where I'm like finally good. I'm finally out of this system. And it, it's never true. It's like you go back into life and you're still fighting. You're still struggling. Um, it, it, I, as a kid, um, I read the Left Behind teen series, which is very bad. Don't do that to yourself. But like one of the main characters in it, in this series, is this kid who like prayed to God that God would come into his heart or whatever. And then the rapture happened, which is a thing that happens in these books. I don't know where that came from, but it's there. And, and he's one of the people left behind. And he's like, I prayed to Jesus multiple times and nothing happened. And that was kind of like this fear that I had with passages like these, where it was like, is, what will be enough? You know, what will be the thing that gets us out of this pit? And it turns into legalism in a lot of different ways. It turns into like, well, if you do all of these things, then you're a good person. But even if you do all of those things, you're still fighting this futility, this struggle against life, essentially. It, it seemed when I was reading passages like these and when people were teaching about passages like these, that the evangelical hope was that someday you'll die 
um, and you won't have to deal with this anymore, and maybe you'll go to have you'll go to heaven, and you won't go to hell. That's kind of like what the evangelical hope always felt like. Maybe you'll die, and you won't go to hell, and then things will be better. And that framework is not just frustrating because like it obviously sucks, but also because it's just not in there. Um, it ignores Romans eight, um, and and even the end of Romans seven. Because Romans 8 starts with this big, bold claim that there is now, presently, no condemnation. And it's like, okay, what? Um, at, at the end of Romans 7, Paul's like, well, what am I going to do? I hate all of this. How, who's going to free me? Um, but thanks be to God and his son Jesus. And then he starts Romans 8 and he says, there is now no condemnation. And it's this, this complete turnaround where it's like, oh, you can't read Romans 7 in isolation because it leads directly into Romans 8. And this whole struggle is like, cool, there is now presently no condemnation. And as I went into university, this was like my bedrock, where I would talk to people about like the subjugation of sin and how everyone struggles with sin. And I'm like, I don't think we're supposed to. I don't know if the dream is that everything sucks all of the time and we have shame and guilt and hate ourselves. I think the dream is that there's now no condemnation and that, you know, God's love brings us out of that, that, you know, we might live in this struggle, but it doesn't identify us. It's not a part of who we are centrally. Romans 8 is this, this catharsis, this release, this letting go of all of the tension that Paul has brought and built up into Romans 7 into this promise that there's no condemnation. And then it gets, it gets more, more intense. Um, Romans 8 assures us that we're free from sin. And it gets into this language of if God is for us, who can be against us? And nothing can separate us from God's love. It's this high, victorious, glorified language. And, and by the end, you almost get the sense, okay, like the Christian is untouchable. God is on our side, therefore, this thing we've called sin is defeated, and everything is good and dandy and perfect. There's no condemnation, the end, right? <laughs> but that doesn't feel right, does it? Like, doesn't that feel too easy? Um, that's too clean. That's too simple. That's not how any of this actually works in execution. Um, I I use this slide, this picture. I think I feel like this is mostly for Darcy, and Darcy isn't here anymore. I was like, um, or he's not here today. Um, <laughs> Darcy's gone to a better place. Um, and, and I wanted to use like a, a vision of like industry, and I couldn't find what I wanted, and so I grabbed this picture from Inception. Um, but it actually works because we're about to go deeper. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, so we, we have this weird, weird thing where we don't really like Romans 7 and we really like Romans 8, but it also feels like kind of flat and lifeless. Like this idea of like perfectly no condemnation feels too clean. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But it also rings with all of the horrible ways that the church has used these ideas of glorification to validate evil, to validate this idea of, oh, God is for us. Who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from God's love. So we can do whatever we want. We can do heinous, heinous things against people. Or, or we can um, keep our doors open, even though it's super, super not safe to do that. And so when I come to Romans 8 and this idea of like, 
there's there's suffering and hardship and then no condemnation it's like okay but but why what's the point it's like this jobian scene where you have job and he's crying out to god for answers and god doesn't answer him I, at least my my reading of it was always like god is like look how big the universe is cool bye and it's like that's not helpful these are real questions the suffering in romans 7 is real and i think as much as it's easy to just like dismiss it and say there's no condemnation, we feel that. We feel the suffering. And the sense of anticlimacticness, it doesn't almost feel fair sometimes. Like, um, to bring it home, over the past few months, basically, uh, I was really struggling to get a job. I was looking around and nothing was, wasn't happening. It was all, all these different things. And I think a, I watched like my bank account go down and down over the course of the months. And I think in my mind, um, once that number hit zero, there's just gonna be a big black void. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't want to get to that point, but it was gonna be fine, I think. Um, and along the way, these things would happen where a friend would like lend me a bunch of money or I'd get like a two day job. And I was like, cool, this is like this weird fed by ravens moment where I'm like staving off this like inevitable despair. Um, but this also sucks because I'm waking up, you know, the next day, the next month being like, I don't know if this is going to happen again. You know, God is speaking me in this still small voice. And I'm like, could you please just show up in the whirlwind? And then, um, in kind of the span of a couple weeks, um, almost one week, um, I got a job. I got a job. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, there's like a weird banking error. I lost like $500. Um, and then student loans came in and took a bunch more money. And then I was still waiting for like um, this production company I'd worked for to like send me the check that they owed me. And it was weird because I watched that number hit zero. In fact, I watched it hit like negative one or something like that. Um, but then it was fine because I knew stuff was coming in. I knew I was going to talk to the bank and they would give me that money back. I knew that check would come in. And I was like, this has worked out too perfectly. Like, sure, um, we can put this down as God's deliverance, but if that's the case, why all this crap about like the struggling, despair, and the depression? Like, if you were going to work it all in the end, what's the point of all that? There just being no condemnation feels so, so strange. And so when you go to the next slide, the struggle of Romans 7 feels real. It feels more true to life. Yeah, I do do the things I don't want to do. Um, and sometimes it, it, you're, you're struggling. It's, it's this image of despair. And we've been there because that's what living in empire is. We've been talking this whole service or this whole sermon series about the idea of empire. This is what empire does. This like struggle against yourself is a product of empire. Earlier this week, um, I had the privilege of hearing um, uh, Dr. Willie James Jennings speak twice and it was super fun. Um, and he talked a little bit about the history of um, the current moment that we're in and, and, and this discussion of whiteness and the way um, the colonizers came in and built this image of like perfection um, and it just looked like them which is kind of dumb uh, and then forced everyone else to fit into these boxes 
And, and in doing that, you got disconnected from yourself and you got disconnected from the people around you because now you're categorizing everyone else into boxes. And you also get disconnected from the land because when you're categorizing people and making them into products, you're also making the land into a product because everything fuels this machine of efficiency. This is empire. I think sometimes about the people I grew up with who I'm sh like, I'm sure, and when I talk to them, they're like, yeah, I want to love people. I want to live a life that loves people. But then I see the way that their life, their theology, their view of the world has been influenced by empire, by this idea of like squeezing people into boxes. And some boxes are okay and some boxes are not. And the thing you want to do, loving people, you can't actually do. This is empire. This is what we go through all the time. As someone um, with potential ADHD, it's like an asterisk, but it's like 99% confident. Like executive dysfunction, you know? Um, I, I don't do the things I want to do. In fact, I don't even do the things I don't want to do. Sometimes I sit all day and do nothing and it sucks. We've created this image of neurotypical whiteness, uh, uh, of all these different things that people, boxes that people don't fit into and we separate people and we judge people and it's bad. The temptation of empire has warped our faith into a weapon in so many ways. It has warped the way we live into a weapon and thus we no longer do the things we want to do. We cannot love, we can only hate. And so in this context, the relief of Romans 8 is genuinely relieving. We can go to the next slide. It's, it's this understanding that, yeah, life is a struggle. And no, we won't be perfect. And yes, you're going to disappoint yourself and disappoint others. And yeah, we're all victims of this thing called empire. But there's no condemnation. There is now, presently, no condemnation. There's no shame. The shame I felt when Romans 7 was used as um, this image of individual sin instead of systemic imperial damage, that doesn't exist here. You're allowed to fail. And when it's so tempting to read Romans 8 in this light of, you know, God empowers us to do whatever we want. And so, no, we won't do anything. And, and no, we can do whatever we want. We're missing the forest for the trees. It's not this, like, idyllic passage about how good we've got it. Because that idea is also a reading born of empire. It's a reading born of like, if we just have this product, we'll be fine. But that's not what Paul actually says. In the next slide, we'll see Romans 8, 18 to 25. And I think this is the key. I'm just going to actually read the whole thing um, of this passage. I'm going to read it from the slide. I don't want to do this. Um, For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know, we know the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. As so we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope, in hope we were saved. But hope that is not, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. We're groaning. The earth is groaning. We're struggling. The earth is still in bondage. Um, through, through the lens of this, of this sermon, or this series, I can't help but think when the earth groans, is it groaning with the voices of hundreds of thousands of indigenous children who've been murdered by the empire that we helped create? Is it groaning with the extraction of the land, with all of these different forces? But we can groan with it. And we groan with hope that endures. Hope that's not necessarily confident, but that endures. This is the now, not yet of it all. The fact that God's promises are currently coming true, and there is now no condemnation. But we're still in this mess, and we still look afar at a hope that there will be justice. That the injustice we see constantly, that we're victims of, will be overturned. Willie James Jennings said that to be Christian is to be aware, aware of what is and what should not be. And that the divine overturning towards what should be, we're part of this process of divine overturning, this hope that there will be justice, that the land will see redemption, and that empire will be overturned. In our book that we've been using for this series, Romans Disarmed, there's this long um, poem um, that's lamenting about the state of the land and our involvement with it. And we'll turn to the next slide and, and, and start to look at it. Um, they say that this is what it means to live in the spirit of Jesus. Not a place of spiritual high or continuous joy. Not this place that, oh, God's with us so we can do whatever. No, at the center of empire, in the midst of a culture of death, in a world where powerful countries refuse to take climate change, seri change seriously, and oil leaks by the million leaders into the Muskeg, where indigenous women continue to disappear and Palestinian teenagers weep over their barren future. In that world, living in the spirit, living in the spirit looks like the agony of childbirth. Living in the spirit looks like the tear-stained face of someone who can't quite believe how bad it is and who knows that this isn't how it was meant to be. This too is part of the suffering that demonstrates that we are led by the spirit. This too is at the heart of a suffering that shapes Christian endurance, character, and hope. If the spirit of Jesus is the same spirit that hovered over the face of the deep at the dawn of creation, then in the face of ecological despoilation, there can be no life in the spirit without such suffering, without such lament. And that lament can only be real if we know what it is that we have lost. Nikayla talked today um, in her land acknowledgement about getting to know the names of the trees. Um, and as she did so, I, I couldn't help but reflect that like Adam's first job in creation was to discover the names of everything. We have hope though. We have hope against hope because we hope with endurance for what we cannot see. And when all we see is empire, the Christian imagination is rooted in this belief that empire isn't the end. Willie James Jennings um, said this really cool thing um, where he asked, where is the future coming from? 
and and, and maybe it's because like I'm out of uh, I've been graduated for a, a year and a bit, and any like educational coolness just like blows my mind. I was sitting with um, a couple of friends who are still in school, and I was like, "This is the where's the future coming from?" That's a crazy question. They're like, "Yeah, this is a, a good lecture." Um, <laughs> he asked, "Where's the future coming from?" And he said, "The temptation is to say like it's coming from out there, but that's stupid. Um, that doesn't mean anything. The future is coming from beneath you." When you plant a seed, that's where the future is coming from. Give it a month, give it a year, and something will grow. We're, we're so often tempted to, to view um, temporalness in this vague, vague way, but Jennings roots it in place. The future is coming from beneath you. We learn the names of our trees. We learn the names of our animals. And we need to be attentive to place, to the area around us with hope, to be aware of how creation is groaning, how the world we've been given is struggling, and to see and hope and begin to act in ways that will prevent that groaning. Hebrews has this conception of faith uh, where it's looking for a country that doesn't exist yet. In this context, too, this idea that, you know, maybe, maybe our answers come from an understanding of place, an understanding of presence, uh, of the creation around us, of participating with that groaning of creation, suddenly Job makes so much more sense to me. Suddenly the story of a guy who's suffering and struggling and calls out, God, where are you? Suddenly it doesn't seem so strange to me that God says, look at the things around you. Look at the birds, at the ostriches and the animals. Consider your place among them. God is rooting Job in place, in, in creation, in, in this world where, where future is, is fostered by what we do in this place. If we destroy the ground, there is no future. But if we, if we lean into it, if we work alongside it, we create future. And the man who was Thursday follows this thinking as well in its Job scene. Um, directly after Sunday doesn't say anything, and I'm very scandalized, um, this other guy comes in, who's like the one actual anarchist in the whole story, um, and he's so mad, because he looks at this council of people, and he says, you never hated because you never lived. You've never experienced anything. You sit on your high and lofty chairs. You are the law, and you have never been broken. I think, again, of this idea of Christianity that's been um, married to empire, and creates the very law, the very struggle against the law that we saw in Romans 7, where sin, empire, takes hold of the law that was supposed to be good. You are the law and you have never been broken. I do not curse you for being kind, I curse you for being safe. And he says all of these things and, and Gabriel stands up and is like, how dare you say that? Um, it's not true that we've never been broken. We've been broken upon the wheel. We have struggled. It's not true that we have never descended from their thrones. We have descended into hell. And then as he's saying all of these things, he's like, we're all together on this. And he turns to Sunday and he says, have you, have you ever suffered? And Sunday's response is, can you drink the cup that I drink from? Because the man who was Thursday, like Paul, 
grounds these existential questions of despair in incarnation. Again, in creation. God's answer is rooted in shared suffering. Je Jennings talks about Jesus as someone who walks and learns with us, who, who necessarily was born of a mother and had to learn from his mother how to operate in this world. God incarnate as creation is the root of all of this. It's this weird concept that binds this entire faith together. That Jesus is someone who walked with creation, who grew up as someone who was subjugated amongst the people who were subjugated by empire and who eventually died to the empire. This struggle, this Roman 7 struggle that we all have, he also went through. And sometimes even that's not enough for me. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? It's not okay that I have this vague concept of God dying because I have nothing here. And you know what? There is now no condemnation. That's fine. The point of all of this um, is that creation matters. Place matters imperatively, and we need to care for it. Jesus didn't become a man because it was fun. He did it because creation matters, because being in this world matters. And continuing through Romans 8, Paul preaches an incarnate God who suffers with the people, whose love is made manifest in this suffering. And Romans Disarmed picks up on this as well in the next slide. Where am I? So the place... Where am I in here? I don't know. I'm going to read this. Um, the place of lament would be unbearable if it weren't for one thing. If grief is the subtext, then God's love is the text. For I am convinced, says Paul, that the love of God goes all the way down, past the death of the creatures, the angels who do the bidding of evil, rulers who mandate destruction, this present reality of a culture of death, the future plans to destroy and the powers that seem to be in control and the height of our military aspirations and the depths of our tar sands. None of the wounds we have inflicted on creation can tear us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is because of such love, the same love that reconciles us to all the creation that we have harmed, that we can con confidently see through the tears of lament to the biblical promise of a new heaven and a new earth we are waiting, says Paul, for the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for resurrected life and new creation. Not some rapture to heavenly bliss, but a new heaven and a new earth where justice is at home. In the end, it is being surrounded by such deep love that we have the power to abandon safety and security and say no to the idolatry of our culture, no to the death-dealing hopes of our world, no to the ways in which our technology would seduce us. This is the challenge of Paul's letter to the Romans. Realize that you are a people of lament. And both Romans Disarmed and Willie James Jennings stress this need for repentance, for a need to be aware of the ways we've been part of this whole process, the way we, ways we've hurt the earth and the people around us and ourselves, to reflect on how we have wielded the swords of empire, how we have harmed the earth, but the promise of Romans 8 is that we can do so without shame, with no condemnation. We are made free from the shame that empire creates. And where chapters like Romans 7 have been used by empire-driven people to shame others, to trap them in patterns of guilt, the promise is that there is no condemnation. So we are equipped to actually start doing the work.
We don't have to be bound up in this terrifying nature of like, am I doing enough? Just start working. And so when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And surely all things work together for good. He's not talking about this easy name it and claim it at faith or cheap grace. He's talking about the long haul. He's talking to a disparate, worn down people, subjugated by empire, saying, this is not the end. It's planting mustard seed faith, clinging to a disparate hope that things will pan out. Justice will be done. The harm that we've done will not be the end, but there will be restoration. There has to be. This is the climax of Romans up until this point. Do I have one more slide? Yeah. Yeah. This is the climax of all of Romans up until this point. You are a divided people, subjugated by empire, but you've been called together. We're all equally complicit in, in, in the destruction of empire. We're all equally flawed but you're all equally without condemnation and that your struggle will bind you not only together, but with the earth who groans with you. And these groanings are not wholly in vain. Together you will see justice come. Will empire separate us from God, from each other? Will it judge us? There is no condemnation. There's no judgment beyond him. Instead, he will judge empire. Justice will be carried out and the earth will have its redemption. This is, this is the mission that we're all called in. This is the direction that Paul is taking. We all get to participate in this overturning of empire because the world will be turned upside down. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>